located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have Patrick Deneen with us uh, today. He's well known, of course, to our listeners. Uh, he is at Notre Dame, professor there, and his book and thesis on, quote, why liberalism failed is one of the most discussed and debated uh, expressions in recent years. Our topic today is not a new book, though. It's a review essay that he wrote in American Affairs entitled A Tyranny Without Tyrants. Uh, Rusty brought it to my attention, and, and we thought it's something that deserved a discussion here on the podcast with our listeners. Welcome, Patrick. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks for, uh, thanks for reading the essay. Well, it's a promising title, uh, a paradoxical title. Maybe first I'll, I'll ask you a, a more abstract question. What you describe as a tyranny without tyrants, have we ever seen a precedent for the forms of tyranny, which we'll get into, but are there any precedents for what is going on today? Anything like this has ever happened before? Well, you know, during the course of the essay, which is a re it's a long review essay of Michael Sandel's new book uh, on meritocracy, the title of which is The Tyranny of Merit. The title actually really led me to think a lot about what it would mean to live under a tyranny in contemporary, in, you know, in the contemporary moment drawing on kind of classical philosophy, uh, which is, of course, the you know, the origin of the word tyrant is Greek, uh, and uh, classical philosophy was, you know, I would say, in the Western tradition, was most notable for its, its efforts to uh, try to think about politics as a way of avoiding tyranny, in addition to envisioning what a good regime would look like. One of its primary objects was to avoid tyranny. And, and one of the things that struck me about the book and thinking about the nature of what a tyranny is, is that it's actually relatively rare that tyrants sort of declare that they're tyrants. You know, that, uh, you know, we can, we can certainly think of examples. I think I mentioned Stalin and, you know, Saddam Hussein as two figures. But that in most, in most of history, you know, to really to the, the central question you just asked, most regimes that we would regard as, in some sense, as tyrannical were led by people that, that either themselves believed or attempted to persuade their, their uh, subjects to believe that they were actually beneficent. And the example that I use several times is kind of the old aristocracy, which today people regard as you know, an unjust regime, that people were using arguments about noblesse oblige to shroud what were actually self-interested forms of rule and governance. If that's the case then, and I think it's, it's you know, there's, there's certainly an argument to be made that we're seeing that kind of uh, dynamic in spades today, that uh, what we're seeing today are people who, who are governing under the claims, under the governing claims of being beneficent, uh, social justice, of, of uh, having only the good of the people in, you know, in mind, when in fact they're largely 
benefiting and advantaging themselves, which is the classical definition of what a tyrant is, those who govern for their, for their own sake and their own behalf. You actually term classical political philosophy as the effort to, quote, discern noble claims to rule. So classical political philosophy has sort of an analytic, partly an analytic function to examine a political leader. Uh, okay, most of them make their noble claims. We have to discern just just how credible are those claims, and then how to achieve, as you put it, quote, how to achieve the best or at least better forms of governance. You imply that we need to do more of this right now. We need to have more discernment of the claims of the elite. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly correct. That um, that the, I mean, in classical theory, the distinction between good and bad forms of rule wasn't the claims of of what the ruling class stated. You know, they could call themselves an aristocracy, but in fact, were they ruling on behalf of the good of the whole? And so there's an element of self-sacrifice in what the classical theorists regarded as good political rule. Uh, in other words, that they had to rule not merely for their own sake and, and, and on their own behalf, but on behalf of, uh, of the people that often they, they, they had more power over. Uh, they were in a position of greater power, greater authority, sort of political advantage. And, you know, the great question of, of classical theory is, you know, how do you motivate people to rule for the sake uh, of others rather than for their own advantage? And this is one of the great, you know, sort of the great challenges of classical philosophy is how do you, you know, what, what's the source of that motivation? You know, is it philosophy? Is it, um, you know, is it religion? Is it um, some, some form of beneficence that uh, can be cultivated? Uh, and many, many classical philosophers regarding, you know, all those things, can be good and necessary, but what you probably also need is political power that's capable of sort of combating the tyrannical impulses of the ruling class. And in this sense, you need you need a sort of a countervailing force in the polity. What is, we'll, we'll, we'll get directly to the book, what is the, give us for our listeners, what is a basic definition of meritocracy? Of course, it's a great question. It's a it's a phrase that goes back um, to the middle part of the 20th century. Michael Young's book, The Rise of the Meritocracy, is I think might be the first time it was coined, and it it corresponds to the rise of a you know we could say broadly a ruling class or a set of claims of what constitutes excellence, especially among a ruling class, at a time when you know, certain kinds, certain kinds of educational aims and forms became predominant. And this was especially the rise of, you know, what James Burnham calls the managerial class, you know, the beginnings of the managerial technocratic uh, engineers, you know, the beginnings of computer science, people who, um, what Robert Reich calls symbolic analysts, people who can manipulate sort of abstract forms of data, so a very different set of ruling claims than you know might have existed at a time when either nobility or self-sacrifice or piety or wisdom you know all the various kinds of ruling claims get put aside in favor of a much more kind of technocratic form of rule and the way of identifying these people especially through you know such developments as the SAT you know the, the attempt to just identify raw aptitude become synonymous with what we nowadays call merit. Um, so it's a, it's a particular kind of merit. It's not sort of, it's not merit 
based on a certain set of virtues or, you know, again, piety or something like that. It's really moves in a much more technocratic direction. And Sandel's basic claim is that the meritocracy, at least in that 20th century version, is, quote, increasingly tyrannical. Why is that? This was the claim that in some ways I was I was really trying to sift in Sandel's book. You know, Sandel is he's a political theorist. He's uh, works in the same vineyards that I work in. Teaches at Harvard University. He spent his his academic career at Harvard. Uh, so he is you know he's at the pinnacle of the sort of meritocratic world. He was himself a Rhodes Scholar. Went to you know some of the finest uh, schools, universities. At the end of his book, he describes his own sort of meritocratic background, his training, you know, kind of the, the rewards that he received for exhibiting certain kinds of merit. So he recognizes he's a member of the, you know, kind of at the pinnacle of the meritocracy. But he also recognizes, and this is, you know, this is, I think is what is, what's really important in his book, he recognizes that the, the, the growing gaping divide between those who are elected or selected as members of the meritocratic class, especially through the sorting machine of the modern elite university system uh, and those who are not selected to be members of the meritocracy that a kind you know that this divide has now manifested itself of course economically socially you know we even you know in, in, we could say in kind of um, almost moral form sort of who who is regarded as as attaining a kind of merit in almost a religious sense and, and and sandel begins his book by talking about the kind of protestant origins of the idea of merit and of course this has manifested itself increasingly in a political divide that has really come to define the west certainly the united states in the last several years where the divide is no longer between you know what I think we traditionally thought of as, as liberals and conservatives, but increasingly the divide is between the credentialed and the non-credentialed, between those with, with the markers of meritocracy and those without the markers of meritocracy. Uh, and those who control the institutions in the United States and really across the Western world today, maybe the whole world, they are members of the meritocracy. They've graduated from the kinds of institutions that select the meritocracy, and they're increasingly governing in a kind of autocratic manner, dismissing and even outright uh, attacking certain democratic outcomes when they are unfavorable to their class, uh, regarding them as the result of illegitimate populism and using institutions at their disposal to increasingly institute forms of social and political control that certainly resemble forms of tyranny. You link the meritocracy to liberal tradition, right? How does the meritocracy spring out of that longer history? You're right. I link the meritocracy as the kind of the logical outcome of the of the kind of claims to merit and rule that you see articulated very early in, in the liberal tradition. Uh, so on the one hand, liberalism, we can describe it many ways, but one of the things it sought to do was to displace the old aristocracy. Uh, and it's the ruling claims of aristocracy to be uh, especially uh, a member of the aristocratic class as a result of one's birthright. And conversely, to be uh, not a member of the aristocratic class uh, as a result of you know one's parentage uh, and one's social standing. So liberalism, in some ways, was a was an effort to displace that older tradition, that aristocratic tradition, that designated your status, especially by family ties, 
and to replace it instead with individual um, attainment uh, to liberate people from the limits of place, of family, of tradition, of, uh, of whatever inheritance they might have received, literally and figuratively, and simply to allow for um, the attainment of one's status and position as a result of one's own efforts, at least as far as liberalism understood how one attained that standing. And as a consequence, one's advance and one's um, ascent in the now increasingly economic and social order defined and uh, shaped by liberalism, in effect created a new kind of ruling class, a ruling class of people who were designated as successful based on the features that were specially prized in this new economic technological order. It took, obviously, hundreds of years for one order to sort of fade away and another order to replace it. And Sandel tells part of that story pretty well, especially with changes in institutions like Harvard that sort of, you know, even until the middle part of the 20th century still selected its its incoming class on the basis of family ties, um, you know, uh, you know who, who, who could trace their family all the way back to the Mayflower, you know, the, the Bush family is a really good example of this, you know, kind of the a, you know, multi-generations of students that would go to Yale. And, you know, it wasn't as important about what your SAT scores or your GPA, and, you know, people mocked George W. Bush because he was a C student, but it mattered much less that one strove for grades. It was kind of unseemly. You know, there was a thing called the gentleman C. You know, this, this, way, this is a shocking thing for my students to hear. It was, ever, it was ever desirable to get a C, but, you know, one's fate didn't rest on on whether or not you got A's in every class. Yeah. So, so it took a long time for this ruling class to really, you know, sort of you could say for one ruling class to sort of fade from the scene and another one to displace it. And I think it's really been over the last several decades, really, uh, where we've seen the sort of solidification of the meritocracy uh, and the consequences of that form of rule, which, you know, rather astonishingly to me, Sandel criticizes for having been a bad form of rule, having made many bad decisions, but doesn't really approach it with the lens of sort of a classical political theorist in which he suspects that maybe these people are actually ruling for their own benefit. It's not just mistakes or accidents or or poor governance, but actually malevolent, uh, tyrannical governance. And that was really the, the kind of the focus of the review was to try to Press the point that, the, that, in fact, we might be seeing a kind of a new kind of ruling class that exhibited forms of tyranny. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. And he, he can't go there. I mean, you, you actually praise him as someone, and you, and you did a moment ago, in the review, as one of the few thinkers in the elite who realize uh, how much the system in which they've prospered has produced widespread political discontent. 
Why are so many others in the elite so often clueless about dissatisfaction and resentment among the rest of America? Is it just that they just don't have contact with them? Yeah, I think it's that, it, it's partly that, and, and of course that lack of contact is very much by design. It's a, it's part of it's kind of an intentional organization uh, of separation that that uh, broadly liberalism has sought to achieve. I mean, I think there's um, to be in some ways kind, I guess, um, less critical. It would be that those who occupy these positions, especially in the institutions where Sandel is, I mean, where I am, the kind of elite institutions, not only, of course, the universities, but corporations and media and entertainment and so forth. These are people who have, on the one hand, deeply imbibed the meritocratic ethos, but they've also imbibed a kind of devotion, in theory at least, to egalitarianism. Right. And it's, it, it's an incoherent worldview. Uh, because meritocracy is, of course, at base, it's deeply inegalitarian. Its its entire aim and purpose is to give rise to a new ruling class, to a, a set of people who are deemed to be better uh, than those who who don't who are not deemed uh, to to be members of that class. And the egalitarianism, you know, on the one hand, if you're a more conservative meritocrat, you might say, I believe in equality of opportunity. But the kind of egalitarianism that especially exists in these elite institutions is a kind of, you know, it's, it's a remnant of a, I think of a kind of Christian desire for a, a kind of equality of dignity that everyone should, should be regarded as at some deep existential ontological level as equal. And it seems to me that the way that this is reconciled is through the increased adoption of the kind of woke agenda in these institutions that on the one hand, you adopt a kind of ferocious egalitarianism when it comes to inclusion of underrepresented groups on the basis of race, ethnicity, sexuality, sexual orientation, gender, and so forth, while keeping intact the structures of the meritocracy. And so I, I, so I think there's a kind of, there's a, a kind of self-deception that's going on. You, you actually call it a, a quote, self-serving subterfuge. Yeah, I mean, and, and so, and I, when I say I'm being, I, I want to be in some sense as kind. I'm not even sure that it's it's um, in many cases that it's that it's conscious that that it rises to the realm of awareness. I, I do think there are probably some who who are conscious of this, and there it's more malevolent, and there I think it's tyrannical. But whether it's it's a, a kind of self deception or whether it's an intentional kind of deception, uh, the result is the same which is this increasingly a kind of lack of awareness of the ways that um, the, the purported egalitarians at these institutions are deeply complicit in the kinds of inequality and the destruction of the lives of those who are not members of the meritocracy in spite of their claims uh, to being deep egalitarians. So it's, it's a, you know, so it, when you ask me, how do we, how do we understand this, this kind of, um, this lack of awareness. I think it's, you know, at some level, it's a kind of structural self-deception. Does Sandel acknowledge at all the rising open hostility the elite often express for the, the hoi polloi? Uh, I mean, I see it getting, getting worse, and it's just open, open contempt and ridicule, and it's often punitive as well. What does he make of that? Yeah, I think Sandel's actually is quite good on this. And he opens the book with a pretty pretty forthright 
reflection on the ways that, especially the rise of Brexit and Donald Trump in the last uh, half decade or, well, yeah, or so, thereabouts or longer, um, is in many ways a direct consequence to that condescension and contempt of the of the ruling class. I think he's actually really quite good on that. Where I where I do fault him in the review is his it seems to me his unwillingness uh, to reflect on the ways that he, I mean even even he it seems to me is is reluctant to push too far the the need to, in some ways to dismantle <laughs> the the basis of the set of presuppositions that have led to this to this divide. You raise an interesting question here uh, that Sandel himself raises, and that is the children of the elite. You know, the, the, if, the, if the meritocrats have made it, they've made it to the top, they're doing very well, and it's a hyper-competitive world that they've entered. What, what does happen to the children of those people who don't, grow up in meager circumstances. They, they, they can't look at themselves as having climbed the income ladder uh, and, and achieved. Is there any, any, anything we should keep in mind about that? Yes. Um, so toward the end of the book, Sandel is actually, again, very good on the ways that climbing the meritocratic ladder is actually rendered a real psychic toll on uh, the generation, especially that's come up with sort of only this meritocratic rat race as the only, as in some sense, the only option that they have to sort of win in the race of life. Yeah. You know, I, I think we're both of a certain age where, you know, you, you didn't have to get into Harvard or Princeton to sort of feel I could, I could have a good life. I went to, I went to Rutgers university as an undergrad, you know, as public school in New Jersey. Uh, I went to Rutgers as my PhD. I got a good academic position. I'm not saying that everyone can do the same thing, but it didn't seem like the, the path was as was as narrow. Yeah, and one could you know one could uh, enjoy one t- one's time in college in the way that I think we still still have a kind of idol of what college should be—a time of you know self-examination, of inquiry, of sort of coming of age, of of self-discovery, of discovery of of great texts and arguments. You know, just kind of a time. You know that that ancient sense of scola or leisure as the as uh, that schools universities these places where one can aspire to that and, and enjoy that. What Sandel describes is something again. I think that we're both familiar with is the way that students today, especially at elite institutions, you know, from the time that they're you know, not even conscious and certainly deeply internalized by the time that they're in, in college, how they're just driven by this imperative to succeed and constantly be demonstrating their success, that there's no minute that can go by without some further pursuit of a good grade, a kind of some kind of extracurricular activity, some kind of volunteering that you can put down on a resume. Uh, and, and this, this and Sandel is good at pointing to, the, again, the psychic toll that this takes on this generation. This is, in a way, I, I read him as, trying to echo something that Plato himself engages in when he discusses how does one dissuade the potential tyrant from seeking to be to, from seeking to act as a as a tyrant and in toward the end of the republic uh, socrates argues that the the tyrant is unhappy the tyrant becomes a slave to his desires and the reason one should not want to be a tyrant, even if one had the you know, possibility of becoming one, is that it is, it is a recipe for deep sort of existential unhappiness. 
And I note that, that that argument that Plato makes probably has only very rarely carried the day <laughs> with tyrants. Yeah. And it's and the argument about the psychic damage of our students is probably not likely to carry the day today, in particular because we have created a world in which if you're not a member of the meritocratic class, it's awfully difficult to conceive of a, of a life that in which you can flourish because we've created this gaping divide between those who get to lead a, a successful, happy life with certain kinds of education and possibilities, and those who are going to lead lives of, you know, truncated possibilities of um, increasingly dysfunctional homes, of, of backwater places that have been abandoned by the ruling class. In other words, why would they want to go back where they came from? And it seems to me that rather than simply saying, yes, let's build out this, continue to build out this world where you're either a winner or a loser, we should really be thinking about a world in which you don't win or lose based on your credential. Did we once have an elite that was grateful and that actually liked the, the, the working class, even if they felt superior to the working class, that they, they liked them? Yeah, you know, I, I don't mean to be, I don't mean to engage in, you know, sort of false, rosy, rosy lensed nostalgia. But it does seem to me that um, the United States was marked by a ruling class, I think especially in the years, you know, just before the rise of this meritocracy, when people who would grow up in whatever place, whatever part of the country they happened to be in, felt or cultivated to feel a kind of responsibility to give something back uh, to those communities from which they from which they emerged and so you know whenever I give lectures at colleges all over the country I get get lots of invitations I always ask if we can go downtown and take a walk around and I always go with it with an eye to looking for the monuments and the little plaques and just the what's the evidence of what you know made this town once a great place to live it may not be anymore you know it may have been abandoned as part of the Rust Belt. And what's, what's really interesting is how many of the, you know, the monuments or the, the theaters or the opera houses or the little, you know, all the civic theaters all over the country were named for people who gave something back to those places. They felt some kind of responsibility. And now you have to think that those people would be now today sucked out to, you know, to these elite colleges and they would never go back. Uh, they kind of, kind of leave them these places as, as, you know, literally to, you know, wipe the dust off of their feet and never to return again uh, without a sense of, of gratitude. And I think that's, again, something Sandel is good at in this book is talking about how deeply individualistic the ethos of the contemporary meritocrats are, you know, kind of lacking a sense of gratitude and a sense of generational continuity that I think did, you know, just as part of the water informed the worldview of an earlier kind of quasi-aristocracy in the United States. Sandel sees the possibility of repentance among the elite uh, once they are convinced of, of some of the damage done to, to, the, to Main Street America. Do you? Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 if anything, I think Sandel is, um, is too silent on this point. I, I think... What I read him as arguing is really how to sort of around the edges sort of soften the rule of the contemporary elite, the contemporary meritocracy without really changing it. 
And I think a central proposal uh, that he that he makes toward the end of the book really, really, you know, suggests this, which is that he suggests that it, we could change admissions policies to places like Harvard so that we would combine selection of the best students with a form of lottery. And he calls this the, the lottery of the, of, of the qualified. So the admissions office would deem which applicants were qualified for admission, which are always many more than they actually have spots. And then there would be a lottery to select from that pool of students who would receive admissions offers from a place like Harvard. And, you know, this, this is what Ms. Sendell sees as kind of a necessary corrective to the, the ethos of the meritocracy. But, of course, you know, I, I think it's fair to say this really leaves the entire structure in place without really going to the heart of the deepest assumptions of the meritocracy, which is that everyone who earned their spot, you know, deserved it as, an, as a result of their individual merit and striving. And I don't see how this, this slight lottery aspect would really change that ethos. So I, I, I really think that there needs to be a, a much more aggressive effort to overthrow the dominant ethos of these institutions, right? And that a much tougher nut to crack. I mean, I, you know, I'd be the first to admit that. I mean, these are places that are you know, more or less 100% of the people in those institutions think the same way. They have the same worldview. They come from the same, you know, if not from the same places, the same you know, sort of philosophical place. These are places that extol their diversity, but, but they're entirely monocultures. And so how would one begin to change and, you know, to begin to change and reshape these institutions? And I think, you know, maybe some form of a genuine lottery, some form of using political power to begin to shape a different kind of ethos in these institutions, whether it's admissions by income level, um, you know, a certain percentage of, of admissions by income level, some kind of genuine geographic diversity, not just kids from the best schools. I mean, I, I just think there needs to be a way of, shaping a ruling class that is not shaped by this one dominant ethos of the meritocracy today. And, and that was really, I thought that was really ultimately lacking in what otherwise was a very good critique, but it seemed to me ultimately blinked when it came to the time of confronting how one would really begin to reshape and, and if this is genuinely a tyranny, how one begins to fight against a tyranny. The article is A Tyranny Without Tyrants. It's in American Affairs on the, on the website. Patrick Deneen, thank you for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Mark, for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.